This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. All right, well, if you've not already, please open your Bibles to the end of Matthew in chapter 9. Not the end of Matthew, the end of Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 37 through chapter 10, verse 15, for our sermon titled, Partnering with God. And as you're flipping over to the uh, end of Matthew 9, I want you to ask yourself the following question. The following question, where do I find purpose and meaning in my life? Where do you find purpose and meaning in your life? Over the past few decades, some sociologists have actually researched this very question and have tried to figure out where most Americans go to find purpose in their life, and in their studies, they've discovered a phenomenon which they have coined the passion principle, the passion principle. And they describe the passion principle as someone's prioritization of finding fulfilling work, even at the expense of job security or a decent salary. Prioritization of finding fulfilling work, even at the expense of job security or a decent salary. In other words, what these sociologists have found is that many people, especially those my age, earlier in their careers, are living by this passion principle as they seek out jobs that offer them a sense of purpose over and against jobs that offer them a high salary or long-term security. Aaron Setch is one of these sociologists at the University of Michigan who's been studying this passion principle, and she has found in her research that more than 75% of college-educated workers believe that passion is the most important factor in career decision-making, and 67% of them say they would prioritize meaningful work over job stability, high wages, and work-life balance. Let me say that again, 75% think passion is the most important factor in career decision-making, and 67% of those same people would prioritize work that gives them purpose over job stability, high wages, or work-life balance. What this tells us, then, is that in our search for purpose and meaning, the majority of us, as Americans, expect our vocation, our job, to give us that meaning. And I think, in part, that this is because, as a society, we have moved away from trying to make sense of the world through something transcendent, like from God or religion. And instead, we now want more of the material, the tangible things that we do to define who we are. And not only that, but we want to have a choice in that matter. We want to choose what the things we do are that define us. And yet, the problem with doing so, and what Aaron Setch has found, is that inevitably, over time, the job that once gave us such great purpose stops doing that. Maybe because we get laid off, or we start seeing issues with the people for whom we work, or we start learning something bad about the organization we work for, and suddenly that job that once offered us this sense of great purpose, great belonging, becomes a cause of even greater burnout, of loss, or even crisis. And the question then that we are left asking is what out there could possibly, what could possibly give us a sense of true, lasting purpose? Where do we find that? What's going to give us that lasting purpose and meaning? 
Well, as we come to our passage in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see that this question of purpose was actually one that was facing the Jewish people to whom Matthew wrote. And the reason for this was that the Israelites, the Jews, were for many centuries a people with a great purpose. They were the people of the one true God. And God had promised them that he would give them things like great land, that they'd become a great nation, and that God would even use them to do great things that no one had ever even seen before. The issue for the Jews at the time Matthew wrote this, however, was that what God promised them felt incredibly far off. Incredibly far off. For starters, Rome had overtaken their land. So God promised Israel land, great land, great prominence, but Rome has taken it over. And so the Jews are now left feeling like exiles in their own land. And on top of that, though, even worse, is that God had been prophetically silent to them for about 400 years. And so between being overtaken by Rome and not hearing from God, the Jews were feeling like a forgotten people without any purpose or meaning to their lives. And so Matthew, knowing this, wrote his gospel, at least in part, to remind his Jewish audience of their purpose as God's people. And to show them that God had not forgotten them. To show them that God wanted to use them for his purposes just like he always had. So long as they would be willing to listen and participate. The issue was that many of these people chose not to listen to God. Chose to ignore his plan for their lives. And instead went their own ways and suffered the consequences for doing so. What we're going to see, church, is that just like the Jews forgot the purpose God had given them and as a result lived in ways counter to God's intent for them, we too can just as easily miss out on what God has made us for and what he has invited us to be a part of. And as a result, right, we can feel hopeless, purposeless, discontent in our lives. And in that discontentment, what we often do is we just look to things like work or things that we do or things in our personal lives to provide us that sense of purpose, even though, as we've seen sociologists point out, that can't ever do that, right? We won't ever find true, lasting purpose in those things. And so what we're going to see as we look at this passage, which is also our big idea for this morning, is that since God has invited us to partner with him in fulfilling his grand story, we can find true purpose in living out that story to the world. Let me say that again. Since God has invited us to partner with him in fulfilling his grand story, we can find true purpose in living out that grand story to the world. Now, there's a lot in that, so to help us understand this, we're going to answer three questions about this and about this passage, three questions. First, what is the grand story that the Bible? What's the grand story? What is that? Second, how does knowing the grand story help us understand what this passage says here in Matthew? And then third, what does this passage then, in light of all of that, tell us about our present purpose as God's people? So what's the grand story? How does knowing that help us understand this passage? And what does the passage then tell us about our present purpose 
as God's people? We'll start with question number one. What is the grand story of the Bible? And before we answer this, I'd like to read Matthew 9, 37 to 10, 15, just one more time for us so we can have it really in our minds as we consider the grand story. We're going to kind of zoom out, so I want to make sure that we are remembering where we're at and uh, to figure out how knowing the story helps us to understand this. So follow along with me, if you would, Matthew 9, starting in verse 37. It says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them to go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, so give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. For truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, if you're at all like me, uh, then when we read this passage, there's really one part that sticks out, mostly because it's weird. (laughs) Uh, And that part is verses 5 and 6, where Jesus tells his disciples to go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I think... Part of what makes this weird is that it sounds a bit contradictory to the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus gives his disciples the great commission and tells them, go to all nations and baptize all people. So on one hand, we have Jesus saying, don't do that. And then on the other hand, we have him saying, no, go to all nations. So this is a little confusing, and I'm like, what is happening? The good news is, that while this passage is confusing, there is actually a way to make sense of what is happening here. However, to do so, we need to zoom out to both understand what the Bible's grand story is and also locate then where this passage fits within it. And the reason for this is because Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, which means he is writing to the people who have a long history with the God of the Old Testament. And Matthew, knowing this history, wants to show the Jews that God has not forgotten about them and still has a plan for their lives. The issue for us, though, as people reading this almost 2,000 years after it was written, is that we're just not as familiar with the story 
of God and his people, right? We don't know all of that history. And as a result, we're likely to miss out then on some of the nuances of what Matthew is saying, considering that we are entering a conversation that's been going on essentially since the beginning of time. That's kind of hard. So basically, if you would, go with me, trying to understand what Matthew is saying to his audience without understanding their same history and context is a lot like trying to understand why your grandma maybe would have gotten upset with your grandfather for letting out an exasperated sigh after your grandma asked him to take out the trash. You ever heard that? Where he's like, ugh, fine. Unless you've been a part of the past 50 years of instances when your grandma asked grandpa to take out the trash and he sighed, you won't be able to understand why his little sigh now is making grandma so frustrated, right? Since there's a conversation that has been taking place for years, if we hope to understand grandma's frustration, we need to familiarize ourselves with that conversation. In the same way, the Jewish people have been having a conversation with God that's been happening for thousands and thousands of years, and since Matthew knows this conversation, as did Jesus, Matthew is writing, and Jesus was speaking, to the Jews in a way that simply continues the conversation they'd been having for years. Parents, you continue the conversation with your kids after redemption. Kids and youth, Jesus continued the conversation with the Jews. Therefore, if we want to understand what Matthew has recorded, as well as his reason for writing, then we need to familiarize ourselves with the conversations the Jews had been having with God for thousands of years. And the best way to familiarize ourselves with that conversation is to learn the grand story of God and his people. So what is the grand story? What is it? Well, like any book, the beginning, I think, is a great place to start. And the opening pages of Genesis really do set up this story. Side note, I'm not going through the whole Bible. We're just going to start at the beginning. What we see, starting in Genesis 1, is that God creates all people and all things, and he tells people, both men and women, that he has made them in his own image to represent him to the rest of creation. So right off the bat, God, the main character of the story, gives his people, Adam and Eve, the secondary characters of the story, a purpose. God gives them a purpose. He says uh, that their purpose is to bear his image to all of creation through their obedience to him. They're supposed to bear his image, represent him to creation through their obedience to him. But what happens, right? We know the story. Adam and Eve, God's people, disobey God, and sin enters the world and corrupts all things. However, God doesn't just leave creation to be destroyed by their sin. Rather, God sets in motion his plan to redeem all of creation and make right what has been corrupted. And he reveals this plan to Abraham in Genesis 12. There, God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you or through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What we see here is that despite humanity's rebellion against God, God intends to redeem all of humanity and all of creation, and he intends his people, the descendants of Abraham, to participate in his redeeming activity. 
This is precisely why he tells Abraham that he will be blessed so that he would be a blessing to the whole world. And yet, for this blessing of the whole world to take place, Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, were required to live and act in a way that would benefit both themselves and the rest of the world so that the rest of the world might come to know God through seeing how much better life is when living in covenant relationship with him. A theologian named Mike Williams says regarding this very thing that God here is calling Israel to be a missionary nation. That's their purpose, to be a missionary nation. He says that he intends its life among the nations to demonstrate its allegiance to Yahweh and thus to be a beacon to others. They were to be a beacon to the world. If you think of a lighthouse, who's seen a lighthouse? I saw one in North Carolina, right? We've seen a lighthouse. We know what a lighthouse is supposed to do. Israel was supposed to be like a lighthouse. And the way they were going to be like a lighthouse is through their relationship with God, through right living and care for creation, they would shine like a beacon of light to the surrounding nations, which would essentially declare to them, if you want true hope and true purpose and true peace, you can find it here under God's rule and reign. If you want true purpose, true hope, true peace, God's got it. Now, we need to pause for a moment because this is truly a massive thing. Uh, God promises that he's going to redeem and bless all of creation through Abraham and his offspring. If you were Abraham, you would be like, that's crazy, right? That's crazy. And as we're thinking about purpose, though, this morning, our alarm bells should be going off because what we have here is a massive purposey statement. If you think of it maybe even in terms of a movie, uh, this is about as big of a deal as when the Avengers team is first assembled. If you like Marvel, you know Avengers. It's about a similar kind of big deal. You don't get the rest of the Avengers movie if they never assemble, right? You just have Captain America and Iron Man trying to do things on their own. This is the Avengers assembly moment for God's people. That's what's happening here. It's a big deal. And this is Israel's purpose. Through living in right relationship with God, the Israelites were to put God on display in such a way that everyone around them would want to participate in that same relationship with him and thus become a part of God's community with God's people. And what's incredible about this is that this covenant between God and Abraham is actually so significant that the entire rest of the Old Testament judges Israel's actions and the consequences of those actions against this covenant with Abraham. So anytime Israel faces a consequence, be it exile or injustice or you know, something evil from one of their kings, we can actually trace the reason for that consequence back to their improper keeping of their covenant with God. It's a big deal. So if we consider then all of this that we've just heard, uh, what then is the grand story of the Bible? What's like a one-line definition we could maybe give to it? And what is the thread we're thinking? What's the thread that ties together this that God says in Genesis 12 with what we're hearing here in Matthew? What is that? Well, the grand story is that God promises to redeem his creation 
through his people, and he invites his people to participate in that redemptive work through their obedience to him. The grand story is that God promises to redeem his creation through his people, and he invites his people to participate in that work through their obedience to him. The natural follow-up question to this is, do the Israelites, do God's people, do what they were invited to do? What do you think? No. (laughs) No. Uh, If you're familiar with the rest of the Old Testament, then the obvious answer is no. In fact, it's a continual and cyclical no. Over and over and over again, the Israelites fail to be a beacon of hope to the rest of the world because of their disobedience to God. And so rather than living set-apart lives in obedience to God that would bless the world, they lived for themselves They failed to trust God, and they suffered consequences as a result. And yet, just as we see Israel's continual unfaithfulness to God, at the same time, we see God's continual faithfulness to Israel, even though they don't deserve it. And amazingly, we see that even in spite of Israel's continual disobedience, God continually is faithful to redeem his creation, and to use his people to bring blessing to them. Even when God's people are unfaithful, God is faithful. But how? Right? How? It's like, this sounds great, but how is God faithful? How does he redeem the world through his people? How does he allow them to participate in this redemptive work, even when they're so bad? Right? Sounds crazy. And we also kind of want to know, as we're going through this, how does answering that even help us understand why Jesus sends his disciples only to the Jews in this passage, right? That's what we're trying to figure out. Well, the answer to that is actually a perfect lead into our second main question, and that second question is, how does knowing the grand story of the Bible help us understand this passage? How does knowing the grand story of the Bible help us understand this passage? If the grand story is that God promises to redeem his creation through his people and that he invites his people to participate in that redemptive work through their obedience to him, then how does knowing that help us understand this? As we look at the passage, we're actually going to see two ways that the grand story of the Bible helps us kind of understand this better. The first is that the grand story helps us see God's commitment to redeem the world through his people despite their unfaithfulness. That's what we'll see here. And the second is that uh, it helps us see that through Jesus, what perfect participation in God's redemptive activity looks like. We learn what perfect participation in his redemptive activity looks like. Let's start with the first point here. How does knowing the grand story of the Bible help us understand this passage? Knowing it helps us see God's commitment to redeem the world through his people despite their unfaithfulness. We're going to look at Matthew 9, 37, just through verse 6 in chapter 10, where we see this play out. Matthew writes, Then he said to his disciples, Jesus did, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. 
The names of the 12 apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." So as Jesus, if you can picture the setting with me where Jesus is saying this, Jesus is looking out at a crowd of people before him, and he tells his disciples, hey, you see this crowd? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And the reality that Jesus is pointing out here is that the crowds of people, the Israelites who are there, are not following God because they have been led away from God by religious authorities zealots, and other leaders. And this is significant because if we think back to God's covenant with Abraham, we remember that God promised to redeem all creation through Abraham and his offspring's obedience and relationship with God, which would function as a sort of lighthouse of hope to the surrounding nations. And yet, what we see here is that Israel has been so led astray by their leaders that they've not only forgotten their purpose as God's people to participate in the redemption of the surrounding nations, but they have now, in fact, become people in as much need of this redemption as the surrounding nations themselves. They are now the plentiful harvest when before they were supposed to be the people going and bringing people in. They, because of their disobedience, are the plentiful harvest. And as a result, because of Israel's failure failure to participate rightly with God in bringing redemption to the surrounding nations, Jesus then establishes his 12 disciples as the new and better 12 tribes of Israel through whom God will carry out his redemptive activity. And this is why you're like, why did we have to read all of those names so many times? This is why the 12 disciples are listed by name and given authority from Jesus because they are supposed to do what Israel never did rightly. And yet, this establishment of Jesus' disciples as the more faithful 12 tribes of Israel doesn't negate God's desire for his people to participate in his redemptive activity. And this is why Jesus then instructs his disciples, don't go anywhere among the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I think we're going to start to see and understand how the grand story of the Bible kind of helps us make sense of this confusing passage. For it's in sending his disciples to the Israelites only that God is once again offering Israel the opportunity to participate in their Abrahamic covenantal duties. He's offering the opportunity for them to do what they have been doing wrong forever. And it's not that Jesus is contradicting what he says in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, nor is it that God doesn't care about the Samaritans and the Gentiles and the rest of the world. Rather, it is that God greatly cares about his people, Israel, participating with him in bringing the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and the whole world into his covenant community, which he has cared about since Genesis 12. Therefore, it is in this moment that we see God's graciousness and mercy once again extended to Israel. 
Because even though, right, even though they've rebelled against God and turned from him over and over again for centuries, God is yet again offering his grace and mercy to them by sending his 12 disciples to invite them again to participate and repent and so that they can fulfill their covenantal responsibilities. Israel, right, Israel's done nothing, absolutely nothing to warrant this kindness. But God shows yet again that he is committed to redeem the world through his people, even despite their unfaithfulness. God is committed to this. Let's consider the second way then that knowing the grand story helps us understand this passage. The second way it helps is by letting us see through Jesus what perfect participation in God's redemptive activity looks like helps us see through Jesus what perfect participation in God's redemptive activity looks like. Follow along with me. I'm going to read from Matthew 10, verses 5 to 8. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, for you received without paying... So give without pay. You know, up to this point, we've discussed the importance of God's people living in obedience to God so that the surrounding nations would see a beacon of God's goodness, that lighthouse of goodness, and want to be a part of God's covenant people. But we haven't really discussed how God's people were supposed to live and how that living would translate into being a hopeful beacon to others. We get a hint of it here in the verses I just read, but in order to get a fuller picture of what God intended, I want us to look just briefly at Micah 6, verses 6 to 8, which I think serves as a really helpful representation of how God's people should have acted in a manner that would draw in the nations, which is also here the manner in which Jesus is encouraging his disciples to live. So turn with me to Micah chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 6 to 8, and as you're getting there, it's important to note that Micah was a prophet shortly before Israel was taken captive by Assyria. It was during a time when the people of Israel and Judah were actually known for their violence, lying, deceit, and all kinds of injustice. In other words, God's people are not doing what they were instructed to do yet again. Big surprise, right? And so as we come to Micah 6, the Lord is having a conversation with his people, and he has asked them to share why they are living so wickedly when he has been so faithful to them. Why are you living so wickedly? And so Micah 6, verse 6 to 8 is their response. They say this. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah hears this, and he responds and tells the people, He, God, has told you, O man, O Israel, O people, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What's important to note here is that the people 
hear God's frustration, and their response is good initially. It's to try and make right their relationship with him. However, in their attempt to appease God, they do something really bad. They offer him human sacrifices, which were actually forbidden by God, but utilized by other wicked nations. And so in other words, God's people had so turned away from God that they were offering him sacrifices that were supposed to be offered to pagan gods because in their wickedness, they'd even forgotten what God wanted from them. Right? This is what they were supposed to know, and they forgot it. And so Micah asks them, right? You can imagine, he's looking out at them, he's hearing this, and he's like, are you kidding me, right? Are you kidding me? And he says, how could you have forgotten what God requires from you? How? How far have you strayed from him that you even forget what he said to you? He has told you, Israel, church, what is good and what is required of you. Do justice, Love kindness, walk humbly with him. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. It's not that hard to remember, right? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with him. That is what Israel was supposed to be known for. The surrounding nations were supposed to see Israel being just, being kind, and in ever-present relationship with God, and yet Israel instead became known for violence lying, deceit, and all kinds of injustice. And the reason that I bring this up here is because when we look back at this passage in Matthew, we need to understand that the Israelites are once again not known for the right things. Instead, they have tried to earn God's favor through things like empty religious practices or doing other things that they see Rome do, And in so doing, they've shown themselves once again to be no different than even their own oppressors, right? They are living wicked lives. And yet what Jesus shows us here is what it looks like to be a perfect participant in God's redemptive activity. And so Jesus tells his disciples, he says, heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, and do so without pay. In other words, he's telling his disciples, the new and better 12 tribes of Israel, to do those things that God expected his people to be doing all the way back in Micah 6.8. To be people who do justice, who love kindness, and who walk humbly with God even when the world around does the opposite. And what's even more amazing is that Jesus has actually spent the preceding chapters, the last two months of sermons that we've heard or so, uh, doing exactly these things. Jesus has been healing people from diseases, casting out demons, confronting systems of oppression, upending economic inequality, raising people from the dead, bringing justice to inequity, being kind to those he should have been enemies to, and through all of it, he walked humbly with God the Father. And in so doing, Jesus showed both his disciples and those he interacted with what it looks like to be a beacon of light to the surrounding people, what it looks like to participate perfectly with God in his redemptive activity. Jesus displayed his authority 
through self-emptying love, and now he sends his disciples to do likewise to the house of Israel in order that they might return to God and participate rightly in his redemptive activity, just as they were called to do through Abraham back in Genesis 12. This is their purpose. And even though they're unfaithful, God is faithful to use his people just as he promised. And yet, and yet, Jesus offers a stern warning to those Israelites who don't receive this invitation. He says in Matthew 10, 15, regarding those who turn the disciples away, he says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In Genesis 19, we read about the destruction of the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah, which God destroyed because of the wickedness of the people. And while we've sometimes heard, or at least I've heard this, that uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed mostly for their sexual immorality, the prophet Ezekiel actually tells us in Ezekiel 16 that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because they had excess, they had pride, they had excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before the Lord, so the Lord removed them. They had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but didn't aid the poor and needy. So certainly, their sexual immorality didn't help, but their destruction was ultimately because they were filled with plenty, but didn't help the poor and needy, and instead abused and used them for their own wicked desires. And church, it is important, it's important that we don't miss the significance of Jesus' warning in Matthew 10 here. As we saw in Micah 6, God expects his people to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with him. And he has shown that when his people do not do this, consequences come. And so once again, Jesus is inviting the people of Israel to participate with him in bringing redemption to the world through living justly and kindly towards those around them. Jesus is saying that just as he has been caring for the sick, raising the dead, confronting systems of oppression, upending economic inequality, casting out demons, and pouring out himself for those who are in need, now he sends his disciples to do the same thing as they go throughout the house of Israel and invite God's people back into right relationship with him. And once again, Israel is invited to participate in God's redemptive activity. Once, I mean, how many chances, right, is God going to give his people? And yet along with this invitation comes a warning. Jesus is warning that if Israel turns away from his invitation to participate in the spreading of the kingdom, it will actually be worse for them than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the people in Micah were known for their violence, lying, deceit, and injustice, so too would the people of Israel be known throughout history as people of wickedness if they do not receive Jesus' invitation. And this is because God so cares about his people loving and caring for others that God will punish those who continually refuse to participate in that activity. For just as we saw Jesus 
do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God in the preceding chapters as he performed signs and wonders, we now see plainly that Jesus wants his people to do likewise. He wants them to do the same. And Jesus wants his people to participate in his redemptive activity, and to participate in that redemptive activity means to act justly, right? To love kindness, to walk humbly with God in order that the surrounding world might see how wonderful and beautiful it is to be in relationship with God and would long to follow him and be grafted into his people. What are you known for? What are we known for? That's the question. How does knowing the grand story of the Bible that God promises to redeem creation through his people and he invites his people to participate in that redemptive work through their obedience to him, how does knowing that help us understand this passage? We've seen two ways. First, it shows that God is both committed to redeem the world through his people despite their unfaithfulness. And second, it shows that through Jesus, we can know what perfect participation in God's redemptive activity looks like. That's amazing, right? That's amazing. Having seen all of this, I want us to conclude by asking our final question, considering that. What does this passage then tell us about our present purpose as God's people? What does it tell us about us? And really, if you take nothing away from this morning, nothing else, I want you to take this away, that just as Abraham, his offspring Israel, and Jesus' disciples were all participants in God's grand story, we too are participants in God's grand story. We participate in that. God has brought redemption to his creation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and now he invites his people, he invites us, you and me, to participate in the fulfilling of that redemptive work through our obedience to him. If you want to know what is your purpose in life, what's my purpose in life, that is it. That is it. As the people of God, we are invited to participate in God's redemptive work through our obedience to him and the type of obedience that God expects from us, the type of obedience that draws those around to us and to God is the same obedience that God expected from his people in Micah 6.8 and Jesus charged to his disciples in our passage today. What is it? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. In whatever vocation you hold, in whatever home you live, no matter what age or gender you are, if you confess that Jesus is Lord of all, then your purpose in life is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Because through that, God will use us to bless those around us. As we seek justice for the oppressed, as we are kind to our enemies, as we journey throughout our days with God, we are participating in God's redemptive activity. It's amazing, right? It's amazing. So this means that whether you're a teacher, a grocer, a technical worker, a student, a landscaper, whatever you are, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are your work is not where you should find purpose, right? 
we as Americans want to find our purpose in work, God says otherwise. Certainly our work matters, and it should be used to benefit those around us, but our places of work are simply singular areas of our life where we are called to live as participants in God's grand story. Therefore, it is our responsibility when we are at our places of work to see people as God sees them, to love those who we see as unlovable, to care for those who care little for us, to have compassion for those who are hurting, to look not only to our own interests, but to the needs and the interests of those around us. For in so doing, we are participating in God's redemptive work and are shining as lights of hope to those around us. And as we live this way, we will find true purpose, purpose that's not fleeting, in knowing that God has invited us to partner with him in fulfilling his grand story. Imagine, imagine with me how amazing would it be and how wonderful would life be if we lived this way, if we loved kindness, did justice, and walked humbly with God, imagine how amazing and wonderful our life would be. And yet, right, at the same time, God is warning us, just as he warned his people here, that if we continue preferring our riches, our comfort, our wealth, our privilege, more than we care for those in need, we will be known throughout history as people as wicked as those who were destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. Church, God wants us who have faith in him, who are members in his community, to love others, right? It's good. He wants us to lay ourselves down for them. He wants us to see injustice and not just look at it and film it, but do something about it. He wants us to see the disunity that exists in our country and even more so the disunity that exists in our churches and to work to bring unity. He wants us to see things like the wealth gap that exists in our neighborhoods and work to bring prosperity and flourishing to all people. He wants us to see things that we own as things that are entrusted to us by him so that we might use what we have to bring others out of enslavement and out of poverty. Just as Jesus confronted systems of oppression upended economic inequality, cared for the sick, sat by the dying, loved the unlovable, and unified all of them into one community under him. He wants us to do the same. That is our calling. That is our purpose. That is what we are being invited to participate in right here, right now. question is, will we, right? <laughs> will we participate with God in his work, or will we choose to live for ourselves? Let's pray. Ask God to help us in that. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.